Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It's Saturday, January 14th. This is obviously Tammy. Um, Jay's taking a little break this week. He is back, but, you know, newborn, all that. And uh, we have two incredible guests this week, so we thought we would slim it down. So it's me in conversation with two people who are in the everyday housing world, who are in the thick of housing at two epicenters of the housing struggle, California and New York working on statewide campaigns. Um, May and I thought this would be a really important episode because I think at this particular stage of the pandemic, people are struggling with all these different kinds of rent issues. And obviously the housing crisis goes back much further than that. Um, But there are a a number of things going on that we thought would be worth covering at this particular juncture in California and New York, but with lessons for the rest of the country and other countries as well, because a lot of these patterns are global. Um, so I'll just say, first of all, that our two guests are Riddhi Singh and Navneet Kraywal, and I'm going to introduce them in a minute. Um, but let me just say a little bit about the kind of general landscape that we find ourselves in. So um, if you've listened to the show before, you've probably caught us talking about housing. It's something that Jay and I are really passionate about, um, and it's a very active uh, chat in the Discord as well for our subscribers. Um Whether you're a homeowner or a renter or you've had some proximity to an experience of homelessness, I think we can all agree that a housing crisis is longstanding in the United States and elsewhere. Um, The last few decades have seen the financialization of housing, which is a sort of jargony but kind of clear and useful shortcut to talking about housing as you know, something of a commodity that that companies and individuals are using the purchase of housing, which should be a human right, which should be something that is for people, for families to live in and to flourish in as a way to make money. And it's something that's, you know, been really evident in um, the United States, I think, through the presidency of Donald Trump, obviously, because his whole family's, you know, wealth making was based in a racist financialization of housing. Um, If you are older than like 20 years old, then you have been living through the subprime uh, mortgage crisis, which is really a crisis of corporate schemes um, uh, that caused a lot of pain during the Great Recession. And of course, you know, I think after the Great Recession, we've seen what I just think about is like a chomping up of houses and apartments by big real estate firms and individual landlords. Then during the pandemic, we saw some really great things like mutual aid and eviction moratoriums across the country, Um, but also rent deals that seemed like deals and then sort of became absurd increases in housing that led to displacement of communities. We've seen a lot of talk about inflation, but very little talk about the housing costs that cause inflation. And yet people are fighting back every day through organizing, through litigation, through different avenues that we'll discuss today. I just wanted to point out to some podcast episodes that we're proud of in the areas of housing. We had special episodes with Daryl Owens in California, Paul Williams in New York, and also when Gia Tolentino came on, we talked about her uh, fascinating correspondence with her landlord. Um, so anyway, uh Welcome to our special guests, again, practitioners in the everyday worlds of housing. Um, This is intended to be an accessible conversation um, with realistic assessments of where we are in the crisis, which, you know, I think it's a kind of a grim place in a lot of ways, but um, we're also hoping to to offer some hope for change um, by highlighting the kinds of struggles people are in. So first of all, uh, Riddhi Singh. Riddy is a Discord leader, um, a very active member of our Discord community. Um, Riddy, since uh, our podcast started, has become a tenant organizer in Rochester, New York. 
she joined the housing movement in about 2020, was a volunteer tenant organizer, and then the communications coordinator with the Citywide Tenant Union of Rochester. And she's been the comms organizer for Housing Justice for All since 2022. Um, For those of you guys who aren't familiar, Housing Justice for All is a statewide coalition in New York of more than 80 orgs that represent tenants and homeless folks um, in the belief that housing is a human right. So welcome, Riddy. Thanks. It's so good to be here. Um, And our other guest is Navneet Graywall. Um, Navneet has been my friend for almost 20 years. We were law school roommates. She's one of the hardest working lawyers I know. Um, Currently, Navneet is working as litigation counsel for the Civil Practice Group of Disability Rights California, but has done incredible work in various organizations over the years. Uh, Before her current post, she was a senior attorney at the Western Center on Law and Poverty and a staff attorney at the National Housing Law Project. Um, Right now, Navneet's been working on litigation in state and federal courts at the intersections of disability and housing, um, but she's worked on so many different things, due process rights for Section 8 voucher applicants, um, cases that involved reimbursing thousands of dollars for public housing residents for rent overcharges, enforcing state land use and zoning laws, and preserving mobile home parks. Welcome, Namneet. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so we thought we might start first just like with a personal question. So there's so many you know social justice issues to get involved with. Obviously, you guys have both dedicated your careers to doing the good work for our communities. But but why housing? You know, why is this the area that you've decided to focus on? Um, Navneet, do you want to get us started? Sure. I'm going to give you a shortened version of my usual yeah. answer. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think growing up as sort of a angry tween in Los Angeles in the <laughs> 90s, um, there were a lot of things I got outraged about, and that led me to doing work around access to education. And I think in doing that work and really understanding more on all of the things that I was getting outraged about, that housing was really integral to all of these issues. Um, It became really clear to me in many ways that if we don't address sort of the very structural problems around how housing is um, not just housing, but where we live Mm -hmm. impacts every part of our lives. Um, I think everywhere, but especially in the United States with its racialized um, histories around housing, that I'm not going to be able to address all of these issues that I care about. Um, And so that really led me into dabbling a bit in housing, as you know, when when we... um, when we met in law school, I was starting to, to intern in legal services, and then that was one of the areas that I really sought out um, a job in after law school. It just happened to be right before the subprime mortgage crisis. Yeah, um, but, but yeah, and I think in the years since, I've kept the same values. I think I have the same basic understanding, but I've learned so much from the communities closest to the crises of around housing um, that it's really made me more more convinced and mm-hmm. that that it really is one of the central civil rights struggles um, in our country. Yeah, wow. What about you, Rudy? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I count into the housing movement in 2020, and there's like a combination of kind of personal experiences I was having, as well as like a bigger analysis I think I was developing at the time. And 
I mean, I, so, you know, like a lot of people, like I'm sure a lot of listeners, I participated quite a lot in like the 20, summer of 2020. You know, I was going out mm-hmm. to these mobilizations. I was pretty consistent about that. And also I was like, where is this going, right? Like what power do we have beyond our ability to turn out a lot of people to these things? Because it felt like, um, it felt like it wasn't enough. And like, you know, in my own city in Rochester, it definitely wasn't, right? Like we didn't see the changes that we're demanding. Mm -hmm. I don't know about any of them, right? Like in Rochester. And at the same time, um, you know, when the pandemic started, my building got sold. I lived in like a duplex and, uh, I was supposed to go full-time at my job and instead I stayed part-time and my uh, roommate was an artist and a restaurant worker and he lost all of his hours. Mm. So there's just this like personal experience I was having where it was like, oh my God, we're not going to make rent. And the person who bought our building was literally 24 years old. It was like this like, (laughs) you know, um, kind of like land baby, we'd like call him. And like, um, <laughs> suddenly, like, you know, like, like we were dealing with this like horrific economic situation. And like, this is before stimulus checks. And this is before like, you know, uh, rental assistance and um, expanded unemployment. We're just like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We like pleaded with our landlord. We like strategized. We like got our upstairs neighbors involved. And like, ultimately, um, you know, like we, we asked for a rent decrease at least or some forgiveness and we got just like nothing. And so I think there's this, this like kind of humiliating experience of trying to like bargain with like a 23 year old, um, you know, like to, to just like not have to pay quite as much rent, uh, you know, we just bought our building and it, it, it didn't, it didn't work. Um, but so I guess like these two like disempowering experiences I had, but like, I, it was like, okay, if this is happening to us and we're both like college educated and, um, both of us grew up in the suburbs and we're living in the city, what's going to happen to the rest of the people in our city? And so, like, we both, the two of us started to, like, get more interested in, like, the tenant movement locally. And once I got into it, I kind of saw that it's a real site of power, right? So tenants have power in all of these amazing ways. So we have power in numbers. You know, there's a lot of, like, majority tenant cities. Um, you know, we can exert electoral power. We can... Um, you know, exert narrative power by trying to shift the stories of housing by telling like what's happening in our lives with our with our homes. But we also have like uh, economic power, right? Um, our landlord needs us to make money. Without our money, our like landlord can collapse. And if we can like organize that economic power um, across like our landlord's buildings, but also like as a whole tenant class, that has a really really big impact on our economy. And we also have this like power, um, like the word tenant comes from the, like the Latin word, I think like tenere, which means like to hold. So tenants hold, right? Like we occupy space. We have to be removed from that space physically with force. So we can like exert our power by like with our power to hold and to stay. And all of that felt really like attractive to me in this moment where like I couldn't understand like the theory of change with like the kind of BLM summer 2020 mobilizations. I couldn't see it going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And there was this like beautiful movement that I was um, becoming like a part of where there was like this theory of change. There was this like clear leverage that I wasn't seeing in like other areas of organizing that I'd been a part of. Mm. So do you want to just say, Renee, what it what it looks like to be a tenant organizer? Like, are you going, you know, door to door knocking on homes like yeah, maybe for someone who who hasn't had this experience, like what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it can look like a lot of different things. When I first got started, I was just doing like eviction defense organizing. So 
in the eviction moratorium that was there at the time, it was like not a full moratorium in New York State. This is like fall 2020. Um, There's a lot of loopholes that people could fall through. So we were like going to like every single door of every single person who was facing an eviction. We'd get like the list of the courthouse and then we'd just like, you know, hit the neighborhoods um, looking for people, trying to equip them with like resources and like bring them into um, kind of this like eviction outreach themselves. And also kind of looking for people who are willing to like go really hard to stay in their home. So um, we did like a few different like eviction blockades in that time. And so that was kind of how that was like one form of tenant organizing that like I know a lot of folks are still doing in New York State. But, you know, I think like the classic tenant organizing is like building organizing where uh, Mm -hmm. you are looking for folks in a building to like uh, form a tenants union similar to like a labor union where you are all together exerting collective power against your landlord. So yeah, it like starts with um, maybe someone reaches out to you or maybe it's like, I just know this building has like, you know, a ton of code violations. This is going to be a good target. And you door knock and you kind of assess um, what the key issues are in the building. What are people really upset about? And you also look for people who, um, both people who seem like, okay, they're ready to fight. They want to like throw down, but also people who, Maybe a lot of people are looking up to in the building. Maybe they're not ready to fight yet, but they're like leaders who um, can kind of bring a lot of people with them. Mm-hmm. You kind of start there. You form organizing committees. You run building meetings. You collectively like make an escalation plan for your landlord demands. And um, yeah, it's cool. And in, in Rochester, there's been like tenants who've uh, done this process for like two years and won multi-million dollar renovations for for their building. So it's pretty it's pretty exciting right. and inspiring. Navneet, I know that over the years, your litigation has focused on different kinds of housing. So we mentioned like the mobile homes, but sometimes it's homes, houses, sometimes it's apartments. Can you talk about your relationship to tenant organizing, renter organizing, or homeowner organizing, and how you kind of interface with that as a lawyer? Yeah, I've worked, I mean, since I, for the entire time that I've been an attorney, I've tried, you know, I've tried my best to to work in a way that supports um, and helps helps grow organizing. So when I first started, you know, I was working primarily around public housing and subsidized housing. So I was working with community organizing groups in public housing. Um, in LA? No. Um, so it was both, you know, I've worked all over the state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah. one thing. So, so the first, actually the first group that I can think of is actually out of San Francisco and really okay. just spending, you know, evenings sitting down with public housing residents to talk about all of the various laws that impacted them so that they could advocate for themselves um, when it came to the housing authorities' policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then it's also, you know, in Los Angeles, so for example, we talked about um, the case that related to rent overcharges and public housing that um, came out of organizing among a number of actual organizing groups. Um, there have been cases that, that you know, have sort of looked looked at um, and worked up that we didn't end up needing to file, but that also have come out of issues specific to public housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, one was, you know, under the Trump administration, there was a proposed rule that would have led to the eviction of 
tens of thousands of immigrant families. And there have been there's been a lot of really yeah. strong organizing around public housing, right, for, for years, I think, for a number of reasons, um, partly because it is a stable community of folks who are who are housed. Um, yeah. And so so I've worked with, with folks in the in those contexts. I've also worked with um, mobile home parks are a really interesting site of organizing because I think similarly it's a lot of folks who have a lot of community, right? Mm-hmm. You're interacting with your neighbors um, regularly. You rely on your neighbors. Um, you don't just pass by them, you know? Um, yeah, so totally. there's, so I've definitely worked with pretty organized groups. We worked on a big case with um, illegal aid in, uh, in San Jose around preserving a mobile home park in Palo Alto, which was pretty wild. But I don't think that that um, park would have been preserved if not for the organizing the community had been doing you know we did our legal piece which kept the park open for I think for long enough for the community to really save the park um and so right I always have seen my role sort of in that way so I'm doing my best mm-hmm. to like you know either keep things the status quo while, or like while the community is really the ones that are both going to be implementing the change and making sure the change is real um, in bringing the issues. And then, you know, I think around 2013 is maybe when the first tenants union really organized um, in Los Angeles. And since then, I've also um, just done work, particularly, again, around subsidized housing so tenants unions that are working with subsidized housing around issues like access or rent increases so it's it's really been all over the place all yeah. over the place and all over the state um but yeah yeah so just but using kind of law as a tool to support these campaigns that sort of in place anyway yes yeah usually it you know using the law is a tool to support campaigns and, and frequently, you know, when the cities, the municipalities have not been responsive to people as sort of just um, a point where we come in to, to either represent the organizing groups or represent members or working in collaboration with folks to sort of hold the cities accountable. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, so, so New York and California, obviously two of our largest states, um, states also, like, to my understanding, nationally, like, that have some of the strongest right, you know, rights in place for tenants, and yet we see extreme exploitation and, you know, all these money-making schemes because there's so many people, I guess, to victimize and they're such large markets. Um, but I'd be interested to hear from both of you, like, are there particular things you see happening in your respective states that are especially unique or noteworthy nationally or internationally, you know, both on the side of... Um, exploitation by people who are using housing as a commodity and campaigns by tenants and maybe homeowners or whoever to push back. Um, Ready, New York? Yeah, I mean, I think it's easier for me to talk about talk about victories, I think. Um, in, That's in, good. Yeah. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> um, it's so funny. You were like opening up the episode talking about like, okay, we're going to talk about how bad this stuff is. I was like, oh, I'm like a very hopeful, optimistic person. I only have great things to say about the state of housing and the housing movement. I'm glad. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah. So so, uh, just like a few months ago, um, tenants organized in Kingston, New York, first to get the city to opt into rent stabilization 
which is actually something we won in 2019, um, the ability mm -hmm. for cities outside of New York City to uh, get rent stabilization. So they opted in. And then just a few months later, they actually successfully organized not just for like a rent stay, but like a rent decrease, which means that um, now people who are living in the rent stabilized uh, eligible buildings um, are going to see like the rent go down, um, which is I think it's the first time in New York history, definitely. And it might be one of the few, if like only times this has happened across the country. So I think that's that's like a really exciting um, bit of like what's going on in New York State. And that's like, again, like possible because of 2019, which is also possible because of like a hundred year long legacy of tenant organizing in New York State. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like on, on the other side of it, right, like um, New, York, New York is like a really important site of struggle, uh, especially New York City, because real estate, right? Like real estate in New York yeah. City is, and in New York State is like extremely, extremely powerful. The real estate lobby is one of the, um, if not the, one of the most influential lobbies in um, New York State. Like they poured so much money into uh, legislative races. They pour a lot of money into the governor's race. Um, so we're up, you know, like obviously we're up against our own landlords as yeah. residents and like but we're also up against like an organized like industry and organized lobby. And that makes uh, what we do very challenging. And do you want to just say 2019 was a historic win for uh, the renter class, basically. So like under gov former Governor Cuomo, who was ousted in a Me Too scandal, um, he's best friends with the real estate lobby. And somehow we still through this fight uh, were able to win a historic uh, renter protection law. Do you want to just say like a couple more things about like what was under that law besides the rent stabilization provision? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like starting in like the 90s, uh, you know, like rent stabilization got like chipped away at. So I want to say like, oh God, like over 200,000 units over time have been removed from like New York City's rent stabilization program. And if you think about it, like 200,000 units being removed, that's like 200,000 families potentially losing yeah. this like basic stability and these basic protections not just against like rent increases, but also, um, you know, against like unreasonable and unjust evictions. Um, so this like, you know, like people talk about like how New York has changed and like a huge part of that is like this chipping away of like the rent stabilization system in addition to just like the rent hikes in general. So uh, we won significant um, provisions to like protect rent stabilization to stop like this process of the removal from happening. Um, and then we won a bunch of other things like uh uh, some protections for manufactured home residents, as well as like some basic things. Like my my favorite law in New York State is like if your landlord doesn't give you your security deposit back within two weeks with an itemized receipt, um, if there's any deductions, you can sue him for like double and in some cases triple your security deposit back. And it's like the most fun law to work on with people. <laughs> like nobody knows that this exists. And then like they love going to small claims court and like making their landlords sweat. <laughs> so um, that's like, I, I don't know. I just love that law. So we want a lot of like kind of smaller things like that. Um, cool. uh, making the eviction process not as like immediate. People used to get evicted in like three days, right? In New York State now, there's like um, a much more protected process with more points of intervention. Um, so yep. it's, it's cool. Yeah. I remember I had a friend who was kind of close to the governor's office at that time telling me that he was basically like sweating blood, like having to sign this bill. Right. <laughs> so this is like not a thing that he was like excited to do. Right. But that I think that was one through. Yeah. Through we miss struggle. him, though. He's he was better than Hochul. So I know, which is so interesting. <laughs> right? so yeah. Sad. <laughs> yeah. This is how it goes. Um, Nimni, like particular features of the California housing exploitation or rights movement that you want to highlight? I know. Um 
I think that being a lawyer, I I am I am closest to problems, right? Because people come <laughs> to us when there's problems. Yeah. Um, even even when we're you know affirmatively sort of just on in an ongoing way engaged with folks, people want to talk to us about problems, which is understandable. So I'm a little more pessimistic, maybe <laughs> than than <laughs> But um, you know, I I think that there's gosh, what are some unique features? I mean, I think, as you know, the number of unhoused folks in California is shameful. Um, And that is, is scary, is scary that we are not and have not been up to the task of housing everyone. So, so that I think is an interesting feature of of California, Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily unique, but by magnitude, certainly. Also, I think we, you know, talking about things that have happened that are good, I think we had a lot of similar sort of trajectory as New York, though, when I talk to folks from other states, they're regularly shocked about how bad tenant protections are in the state of California. Mm -hmm. We have a very fast eviction process. It is rapid. There's, you know, you can't do what's called a counterclaim, which is to actually say, actually, the landlord is the one who's who's doing illegal things here. Yeah, there's all sorts of things about California that are really, really minimal tenant protections and also a very powerful lobbies of apartment associations and realtors and you know, people invested in maintaining the the real estate industry um, and maximizing profit. We did have some on the statewide level, you know, wins that that I don't think would have happened a decade ago. Not I don't think, I think everyone would agree wouldn't have happened a decade ago. So for example, a rent cap, which I don't think any of us think is real rent stabilization. Um, hmm. And, um, you know, prohibiting discrimination against Section 8 voucher holders. But I also wouldn't say they're adequate. So you're getting the pessimist mm-hmm. view here. Not pessimist, <laughs> but just reality. Yeah. On the other hand, you've seen local campaigns that for decades you did not see new rent stabilization ordinances, but you've seen successful local campaigns um, that have really pushed um, counties and cities to do better at the local level, right? And so we've also seen at the local level more um, funding for affordable housing, right? When these things are in the ballot, I think that we see that organizers on at the local community level have done a good job of making people realize why funding affordable housing is so important and why tenant protections are also so important. I don't Mm. think you necessarily see that on like Twitter or the mainstream media um, or, or things like that. But I think you do really see that in looking at what's happening in local communities as opposed to sort of statewide. Is that when would you index that kind of starting, like that local like resurgence of, of interest in, in rent stabilization and other sorts of protections like that? So this is all going to come from memory since, as I told you, I've been working no, on stuff, totally so I didn't have time to prep. But I what is it like after the Great Recession, like just kind of... Ju- I want to say it's about 2016, 2017. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. This, There's something going on, I feel, you know. There 
There is. And and yeah. I want to say as pessimist as I am, I was just texting with, with a few friends yesterday about something that was frustrating um, in, in uh, I don't know, I think a newspaper or something. And I do think on the positive side, I think people even five years ago didn't think tenant protections were important mm-hmm. <laughs> like at large, right? Like, yeah. you, wow. you know, I think that now people accept that rent stabilization is a critical anti-displacement policy. And that, mm-hmm. um, and we weren't seeing that, right? We were just getting the, oh yeah, housing is critical to your health and displacement could kill you, but let's not do anything to stop <laughs> it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's my very non-legal paraphrasing, yeah. but I, I do think there have been subtle shifts in accepting that tenant protections are crucial um, and that funding housing for um, people with the lowest incomes uh, or no incomes is critical. Now, I don't think we're doing any of those things at the scale that they need to be done. And the scale needs to be far more massive. Yeah. I think one of the two things are also kind of happening, which is that like, you know, the tenant class class is growing, especially in like the Mm -hmm. post like, um, you know, mortgage crisis and the impact that that's having on like the tenant movement. I'm actually wrapping up both of my things into one thing, but (laughs) the impact we're seeing on the tenant movement is that like the people historically in the tenant movement are like the people who are dealing like the worst of the worst of the crisis. So like people who are poor, like, um, you know, poor women, um, people of color, but now you also, there's like people who are like downwardly mobile, people who yeah. expected to um, buy a home who have like that hope totally dashed, um, especially it's, that's only getting worse. So I think like there's also more and more people who are seeing themselves in like the tenant struggle who maybe in like previous decades, right, like wouldn't have been part of that movement, would have just like, you know, mm-hmm. gone from college to getting a job to like buying a house and just exited this, uh, you know, like the rental system. Mm. Yeah, Nimni, does that sound right to you and Kelly too? I think that there's part of that that sounds right to me, but I also think it's a double-edged sword and there's a part of me that also isn't sure that it's new, right? Um, Mm. I think I've talked to you before about one of the passages in Mike Davis's City of Courts that I always go back to because it's talking about the 80s in Los Angeles, but seems to encapsulate so much of what's happening now is where it talks about um, how the sort of battles of the 80s were capital versus capital, right, of of wealthy homeowners versus um, real estate developers. And even then in the rhetoric um, around building more multifamily housing was that if you were against it, you were against low-income housing. Well, at the same time, <laughs> those same folks were excluding Uh, low-income folks from the housing they were actually building, right? Um, And so even though I think it's right that there's a lot of people who assumed they would be homeowners who never will be, I also think for me and my vision of justice, that isn't really the goal, right? Like, I think to solve this problem, we need to imagine the world we want, right? I'm very much a believer believer in the Ursula Le Guin school of you have to envision what you want. And I think that 
to have stability, to have justice, to care about the environment and economic justice and all of these things, we need to be moving to moving housing out of the hands of the market where we can. And that that is in multiple ways. I actually don't think one kind of housing will solve that. And and so it is critical that we have this sort of folks identifying as renters. I think that's absolutely made a difference. But I also think the idea that it's even like, okay, <laughs> to, to have the models we have is one that we need to work against. So I guess it's not that I disagree so much as I hope that we can also really think about building solidarity in multiple identities. Um, because I think that's actually the only way we're going to solve our housing crises. Mm-hmm. So this is like the mortgage deduction and stuff like that, like all of these ways in which structurally the kind of like homeowner identity is built in and sanctioned in our in our society. And we need to question that. This is what you're... Yeah, I think we need to question that and we need to question, right? Like when we talk about building housing and we want to not think about the fact that maybe this housing is going to be built on something that used to be an oil well. <laughs> like, like we need to really think, what do we owe people? Yeah. Um, and what do we owe future generations? And what is our relationship to the land, right? I don't think it's just about units and where we live. It's about really like, what do we owe the people who have been put in cycles of poverty because of what we've decided to do with land and housing, who have been made sick by what we've decided to do with land and housing, and what do we owe our future generations? Um, And so I think it's right, like there have definitely been gains made. It's been critical to have um, folks identify as tenants. I also think that we need that, and I think people are right, um, thinking about housing in addition to tenancy or home ownership and whether those are even like the two two sort of classes we should have um right should we have you know we need to look at community land trusts we need to look at other ways of stewarding land as well Well, maybe let's get into that a little bit. So when Paul Williams came on the show, we were talking about this terminology and kind of ideology around social housing. Um, And in some ways, this also overlaps with like EMB, NIMBY debates, which I think, you know, like on the very cynical end, just seem like online insanity, but but probably there's something meaty to it. But um, some of the things you just uh, listed, Namneet, when um, it maybe fit under this definition of social housing and public housing is like one version of social housing. Um, Riddy, can, do you want to talk about this, like in New York and in your work, like how you conceptualize social housing? I know that you also were part of a delegation that recently went to Vienna, Red Vienna, to see the social housing there. So, um, yeah, what does social housing mean? As Nivneet was was just saying, you know, maybe this is part of this kind of reconceptualization of what housing should be, sort of conceptually. Um, yeah, and and you know, how do we how do we get there? Yeah, so I mean, I think the way we we talk about the way we define um, social housing is as uh, you know, publicly funded, publicly stewarded. Uh, resident-controlled, deeply affordable, safe, and beautiful housing, right? So it has, like, all of these different qualities. But I think the really key piece of it is, like, that 
idea of like resident control, which I think is really, really foreign to a lot of us, especially like renters, but even like homeowners who are like on a mortgage and, you know, are beholden to a bank, right? But just, it's like almost like a, a revolutionary idea that like people who live in a neighborhood or people who live in a building should decide what happens to it. And that that doesn't have to come purely from ownership. So like, uh, you know, we could have land trusts. We can also invest a lot in like um, limited equity cooperatives um, and like, you know, just like other forms of social housing. But I think like when we talk about and this is kind of like a big difference between, you know, the United States and, you know, like I went to Vienna, um, people's relationship to the government in like and government housing in the United States is very, very negative, right? We have, like, people have these really traumatic experiences with bureaucracy. People have traumatic experiences living in, like, um, extremely, like, defunded uh, public housing. So what does it look like for something to be, you know, government-funded, publicly stewarded, but then for the people within it to decide what happens to it um, and to, like, regain, like, having, like, a more empowering, more balanced relationship to, like, a public good? Um, so that's like something we're really trying to figure out as we try to develop, um, you know, our bill for social housing in, in uh, New York. But I think it's like a really big, a big question. That's um, it's just difficult, especially mm-hmm. and it's racialized. Right. So like you know, public housing is racialized in the United States. And then this question of like the oppressiveness of like public housing is like it, it's about racism. Um, so yeah. I don't know. It's, it's challenging. But I just want to shout out like Oksana at the uh, Community Service Society. Um, you know, like social housing, she kind of created the social housing matrix. So not mm-hmm. viewing it as this like pure one thing, but social housing is having qualities that there can be more or less of, and that there's like different versions of social housing that we can have. So it's, it's pretty cool. I recommend people check it out. Cool. I'll just put in a quick definitional note for folks who may not know. So community land trust, as I understand it, is when um, basically like a public entity or a quasi-public entity or community organization like owns a plot of land or shares in a building or whatever, and basically is going to make sure that that stays in the hands of the community or poor people to have sort of consistent residency or tenancy in that, in that property. Um, and, um, a limited equity co-op is like a co-op kind of apartment building usually um, where you you basically own, you become a shareholder in that property, but a limited equity one is where you can buy it and, and, hold it, but then when you sell it, you don't make a killing on it. Like it's limited how much you can get out of it so that it stays at a certain level of affordability in, in that community. Um, Navneet, do you want to talk about like social housing as you see it and, um, you know, versus public housing or like kind of what it means rhetorically, but also um, in reality, how it's being practiced in California? Yeah, I'm not it, that involved in, in the social housing campaign. So mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a lot to add on social housing to what Ruthie said, but I do think that all of these models that fall w- under that, right, are critical to reinvest in, um, mm-hmm. in right? So I've worked a lot in public housing and the disinvestment for decades, right? Yeah. right? The purposeful disinvestment is... Uh, I think just scandal, scandalous, right? Um, so I think reinvigorating housing that is um, publicly owned and also, as you're talking about with community land trust, they don't necessarily need to be publicly owned. Right. Um, I The one that I would also add that I think is 
an important model is just tenant purchases of property, mm. right? And yeah. you know, we've we've seen most of these models in the past, right? There's still a handful of co-op that that exists that were subsidized by the federal government um Definitely. and union buildings too yeah 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 they're still there's i think there's still a pretty big one in san diego i may mm. be wrong and, and i think for me the critical thing about it is that we need to have a lot of different kinds of this housing that is not in the market because not everything works for everyone, right? So someone who's working with folks who are disabled, you know, when we're looking at access, it means so many things, right? Like affordable housing is not accessible if you can't get through the door. It's Mm -hmm. not accessible if you can't get around your neighborhood. Um, You know, working with folks with significant mental health disabilities we right we also need supportive housing so i think one of the keys in this is making sure that there are a lot of models because just units isn't actually isn't what's going to work for everyone um so so i think for me that's a lot of what i think about when i think of sort of that we do need more types of more social housing and more types in a vast investment in it less housing needs to be in the market if any but you know you said let's <laughs> be be grounded in sort of the realities of today um but yeah so so i think that's the only thing i would add to what Ruthie said mm-hmm. so in your suggestion that there needs to be different types because there are different kinds of accessibility and use for different kinds of people is that also like an implicit critique of uh, I guess like the most vulgar form of EMBism, which is basically like build, 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 build anything because there's some fluidity in the real estate market. There's some flow between low income to middle income to high income housing. And so if we just have more, we're good. Um, yeah. What is your, I mean, again, vulgar take, but like, is that kind of, are you saying like, actually, you know, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think no, right? I think what I take issue with when we just talk about units is we're talking about the what rather than the who. And I do this work because of the who, right? And like, I care about the fact that we are where we are because people were terrorized out of neighborhoods, not just by zoning, but by racial mm-hmm. terror, by contract by locking people with disabilities up in institutions. And so units are one thing, but where people get to live Mm -hmm. and how and what autonomy and choice they have in that is the the lack of that is one of the reasons we got here. And we're not going to get out of this in a way that is just without thinking about that who. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I use jargon without defining it, but Yimby is yes in my backyard, but it, so it's like supposed to be a counter to no in my backyard, NIMBYism. Uh, but then there are kind of critiques of the NIMBYism because again, the vulgar ver- version is like, just build anything and it'll flow down to the poorest among us. Um, Riddy, you shared um, uh, a piece that included a quote from Rashida Phillips, a policy link on um you know, why that form of EMBism is incomplete because like, for instance, in the meantime, like renters need certain kinds of protections and there may not, you know, the market may not do exactly what we want it to do. Can you talk about how you see this debate around like build and, and everything will follow? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, like, personally, I think, like, the Yimby versus NIMBY thing is, like, created by the real estate industry to make the left mm. talk in circles and not get anywhere. <laughs> that's, like, literally... Wait, do we I need mean, help like, to hurt ourselves? I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, like, literally, you know, there, there's versions of Yimbyism that are literally, you know, astroturfed by the real estate industry, and then there's, like, you know, more, um, maybe, like, authentic expressions of it as well. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, like, um, the reality is, like, let's say we are going to do a supply side intervention that we're going to, you know, fix the housing market by building, building, building. Um, even if that worked, we mm-hmm. wouldn't see the impact of that for years to come because yeah. building takes time and we're in a crisis right now. And instead of like taking these like supply side interventions, we could actually invest in like solutions that, you know, not only are going to like solve the crisis right now, like, you know, time protections, eviction protections, pathways to housing for homeless folks, but also like we can invest in like transformative solutions that are going to help address like the root causes of the housing crisis for decades to come. Um, And it's like, this is like a thing I've been thinking about like all day today where it's like, if the supply side intervention isn't going to do anything for like, you know, like at least a decade, if not more, like why not just do social housing? You know, like if we're going to be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. That's going to take a long time. Social housing is going to take us a while to like set up, you know, social housing development authorities and like conversion systems and get the political will in order and everything. So it's like, I, I, <laughs> we're like, and that and that's going to do something without like en- enriching private developers. So um, mm-hmm. we do need need new housing. I, I don't think that's like uh, yeah. controversial. Like I, I live in a city where like our housing stock is mostly like in from like the 1910s. Like I live in a building from like 1915. My last building was from 1911. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. they're not, they're not good quality housing. And like when white flight happened, there was massive disinvestment in our housing stock. Um, So, you know, like the housing is bad. People want to live in like safe places. People deserve like safe and beautiful homes and, but they deserve like safe, beautiful homes that aren't just going to like, you know, enrich some private developer who they're never going to meet, you know, like having social housing that's getting, you know, invested where people's rents are getting right invested directly back into their housing um, is what we need. So I don't know. It's like, I think the other problem too is like, um, you know, there's a lot of flavors of Yimbyism. There's like the pure uh, build, build, build libertarian, like deregulate uh, Mm -hmm. everything. And that's going to solve the crisis. But there's also, you know, like folks, there's a growing like um, number of folks who are saying, okay, like, you know, we do need to build, we do need to like, you know, um, fix zoning and things like that. And we need to pass tenant protections. And like, I think I'm happy to see, you know, more and more folks seeing that, like, it's not going to be just like a, a blunt solution with building. But I think I'm also concerned that because like supply side economics is like the dominant perspective in the United States. Like that's like, Uh, almost like a religion for us here in the United States. And so even like these kind of supply and tenant protection types, like when you read a lot of like the news around um, some of these folks, what sticks is the supply side. So even if you're saying supply side and a lot of what sticks because it's already the dominant narrative is like supply is really, really the core of the housing crisis. And I just, you know, I just don't agree that that's, that's the root cause of what's happening. Mm. Namit, I wanted to pick up on something you said about um, environmental justice and, you know, how how housing relates to, you know, 
the conditions of, of where we live and how well we breathe and, you know, and, and in a way like disability, the disability rights community can kind of point us to some of that. Um, why is environmental justice or how is environmental justice part of your work in housing? Because it, it's usually kind of detached from that. We don't really think about it too much in terms of housing. Yeah. Over the last couple of decades, there has been really strong evidence, right, that housing is healthcare, more or more than just a, a, a catchphrase. And I think the pandemic really made that clear, right? We saw in neighborhoods where there's severe overcrowding that the rates of death from COVID were much higher. I want to give a, a lot of the credit um, to a friend of mine, uh, who works at Communities for a Better Environment for really making, you know, pushing us housing folks to say, hey, this is all related. Um, and I think so even though environment has always come up uh, with in my work, I think it's the folks who have been doing environmental justice who have really pushed mm -hmm. and said housing is a part of this, right? And housing can both be something that mitigates the effect effects of environmental harms, but also I think folks are telling us that we, if we build housing on these sites that are toxic, we know what's happened to our communities, right? Like we know what's happened in these toxic sites and it's, it's not okay. Right. Right. And so we need to think about, um, environmental impacts when we build housing. We need to think about how to mitigate those impacts. One thing that really struck me in a case that we were doing with uh, Communities for a Better Environment, um, where some housing development had been rejected. Um, it was a supportive housing development uh, that had been rejected. And the youth organizers from CBE had asked one of the city officials why that had been rejected. And one of the things that that city official said was because, oh, that wasn't housing. That was a mental institution. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, and in, in doing this litigation around these issues, I came across uh, some really interesting studies there aren't a lot and and this was true of the city that we were that our lawsuit was against where there's twice the rate of disability in what are designated as environmental justice communities as opposed to census tracts that are not and i don't know what what the reasons for that are but i think right it, it goes to again why this is not just about the units but where we live that matters Cities are okay putting housing where communities of color are living next to toxic factories, next right. to pollu polluting factories, or next to Amazon warehouses where there's thousands of trucks emitting fumes every single day. Um, so, so again, I think all of these things are very closely related, right? Housing is health. And that has to do with how we use land. It has to do with mold. It has to do with cockroaches. It has to do with the simple fact of stability. All of those things impact our health, right? Mm -hmm. Cold, right? I'm sitting here right now and this, you know, I don't know which which number of storms in our atmospheric river yeah, in California, right but 
I'm okay because my roof isn't leaking and I have heat and I literally yeah. have a physical barrier, which is not something that all Californians can say. So I think that connection between environment, health, and housing is absolutely integral and connected. And that's why we need to be thinking about all of these things when we're doing advocacy around housing. Yeah. It also strikes me too that the environmental issues come in on the building side, because I know one of like the recommendations around um, improving our environment is like, don't do as much new construction and try to rehabilitate and use what we have and make it good. And I think that kind of goes to Riddy's point about existing private housing and public housing. Also, the the kind of like having this sort of um, conservation mentality around the housing and caring for it. I do think it's a both and, right? That actually reminds me of when I first started um, as a baby housing lawyer. Mm -hmm. We were working with, gosh, then it was uh, Legal Aid of Greater New Orleans. Now I think it's Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. But we were working with them in some of the post-Katrina rebuilding. And, And that was one of the things that came up, right? Like one of the places that was safest was um, some of the public housing units. Mm -hmm. They were the safest place, but they were demolished nonetheless. Um, And and so that was, uh, I remember that argument being made of like, here Mm -hmm. you actually have sturdy housing. Um, so, So I think that there is something about conservation, but it's also just about, yes, we do need new housing. For sure. But we also still need to make sure that we are, doing our due diligence to make sure that when we're deciding where to zone for new housing, that it's not in brownfields or former Mm. brownfields. What are we doing to make sure that those hazards are actually mitigated? And I'm not the expert on these issues, but they come up, right? So when I see them, I reach out to the folks who are experts uh, because I don't think it's something we can ignore is just say, oh, great, here's a spot. You know, I think that there's a real push to get rid of environmental reviews um, around a lot of housing development. And I think that the consequences could be really dangerous right and i Mm, think that right a lot of communities won't be able to avoid those problems and i think something going back to what uh ridu was saying you know but why don't we just build social housing right i think that's one thing that's always been part of the these multiple housing crises right i i keep referring to crises because the because there are several right we have the crisis that has been going on for decades and decades for the lowest income and most marginalized people. I did not see all of these folks clamoring for housing solutions when they could afford your, you know, just your market rate um, apartment building when people were being devastated, people were severely housing burdened then. Um, Right. So that's not a new crisis. There is this, newer crisis amongst more middle income folks, right, that is having significant impacts on housing policy, I would say both good and bad, right? So like, I think there have, there are a lot of positives around um, a lot more folks um, working on these crises. But I also think that if we build housing that is accessible and affordable <laughs> to to people with, again, like the lowest incomes or the greatest needs, Everything else will also be av- available and affordable and accessible mm-hmm. to those folks, right? So, right, and so 
but the opposite is not true. Right. Yeah. That that is, I think, where I I realize like, the opposite is absolutely just not true. We can build more, and we can choose to either build in what you can say it's a it's a neutral, but it's not a neutral. It's not going to be available to folks again with the lowest income or the greatest needs. But if we do the opposite, we can build and we can build in a way that makes housing accessible and affordable, then, you know, that that will be accessible mm-hmm. and av- affordable to everyone. Mm. Uh, Riddy, do you want to speak to the, the environmental ecological piece? Like, does that come up in your tenant organizing or in your statewide campaigns um, or anything else that Navneet said that you wanted to respond to? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think like, especially um, where I am, a lot of the tenant organizing is focused on conditions because people are being Mm -hmm. literally poisoned by their homes, right? So um, black mold, sewage backup, Mm. you know, rats, roaches, mice. Um, You know, there's like a a tenant who led a really um, powerful organizing drive a few years ago whose ceiling fell on her infant daughter while she was you know, um, bathing her and like, um, you know, Rochester is a majority renter city. Also like, um, when you look at our black population, it's a super majority renters. So this is like, Mm -hmm. like very directly like an environmental justice issue where people, uh, of color, like, you know, black people in our city are dealing with these health issues. And then just also dealing with like, if you're worried about getting evicted, if you're worried about rent going up, if you're worried all the time, like I, the first apartment I ever moved into, when I moved into it, I'd like I didn't know how to look for an apartment. We also it was also really hard, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. there were there's like not that many affordable places. I was on you know every place I'd go, there'd be like thirty other people looking. Um, so the first place I moved into had like simultaneously rats, roaches, and mice. Oh my um, god! And I had like ceiling falling through, and like I had, like all of these other issues, and mm-hmm. you know some of them got dressed, and I was like, you know, I, I emailed my landlord, and they're like, these are very difficult the uh, health and safety hazards that you were liable for and like you know some some of them got addressed but I lived with mice for like three years straight oh my god and I would just listen to them at night it's so right? stressful <laughs> like you hear them and they're scurrying in your walls and oh, you're like thinking about them all the time and like <laughs> even to this day like there's like certain sounds where when I hear them I'm like oh my god <laughs> my mice are here right and so I don't, know, I don't want to minimize this. I think like a lot of tenants have this like tendency to like be like, oh, well, what I dealt with wasn't that bad. Other people yeah. have it way worse. But and I felt so powerless because my mm-hmm. landlord wouldn't do anything about it. And like I was worried if I kicked up too much of a fuss, then I'd get evicted. And this is like before I really knew about tenant organizing, about code enforcement. And but, you know, I wasn't even wrong. Right. Like there's a really good chance that my landlord would, in fact, like not right. renew me at the end of my lease. Um, so. That's like, you know, so so in the scheme of things, like I could still afford my rent. Um, you know, my ceiling wasn't falling on top of my infant daughter, but it's just it had this like really tough impact on me, like mentally and emotionally to feel disempowered. Definitely. And like you had to take that feeling and like bury it really deep inside you because you couldn't you didn't feel like you could do anything about it. And so that's just me. And that's like one person. And then if you look at like the tenant class, like that, this is like you know, thousands of people in every city, sometimes millions of people in a city who are like dealing with a profound lack of control over their housing and not just their housing over their neighborhoods. They're seeing yeah. like their neighborhoods change at like a pace that they, it's like impossible to kind of, we're, we're not meant to see them change at this rate. Um, people mm-hmm. moving in and out, new buildings going up on all of that. 
you know, there's this like literal thing where like you're getting physically ill from the conditions of your housing, but you're also dealing with this like emotional thing that like then extends out to your whole body of like, um, you know, stress and anxiety and like your social bonds are dissolving because your neighbors aren't stable either. Right. Like you can't have the kind of connectivity that you need to feel safe and good. So, yeah, I mean, we see this all the time. I think like the Mm -hmm. public health and environmental justice and like housing justice are all like really, really deeply intertwined. Mm. So, as a as a final topic today, it's and it's maybe the one that's kind of most on on people's minds, like or in the news. I wanted to talk about like the difference between what what we've generally been talking about, which is kind of like renters' rights and housing policy, and maybe like what is generally called in the public like the homelessness problem or you know the homeless problem, um, and whether you know those are separate spheres or kind of how we can think about them together. Um, I think it's very telling that in California and New York which have kind of different sort of public profiles and perceptions, I think, of like homelessness. Um, There is a similar kind of carceral approach that's emerging. And so in California, we have this proposal of the care court, which Navanita is litigating against. So I wanted to hear more about what that is and why that's a problem. And then in in New York City, you know, and it's just one city and, you know, who knows if it'll pop up in, in places like Rochester and other We have a mayor who's basically saying we're going to have forced institutionalization of mentally ill homeless people because they are like a threat to the general public. Um, So I'm curious if we can if we can talk about that, like homelessness versus housing policy and then like why these sorts of, you know, basically like kind of cop based responses are happening in 2022 and 23. Um, Namit, do you want to start by talking about that homelessness versus housing and then this, this specific thing about the care court and what it is? Sure. I think one of the things to start with is what we know is that housing solves homelessness, right? We know that. <laughs> um, and we. this is one of the reasons that I say we need housing on a much larger scale. But I think what folks see when they see people who are unhoused is they see the, the encampments, right? Um, and that is, it, it seems to be that, that that is what is now leading policy rather yeah. than what we know works. So Care Court, which um, you raised, is this new program that just passed. Um, it was sponsored by the governor and passed by the legislature creates a court system that would require folks, in this case, it's people um, who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, would require them to be in this program that ostensibly um, would, you know, is designed, is supposed to include, you know, a housing and services, but it does not provide for housing or services. All it does is create, is is loop people into this court system. Um, and when you look at all the reasoning given for this, you see over and over again, the governor, the legislature, the supporters talking about getting people off the streets. Mm-hmm. When you look at the supporters of the bill, it is travel uh, associations. It is chambers of commerce, right? Mm-hmm. It It is about people not wanting to see people who are unhoused. And it goes against all of the evidence, right? That, that what we need is housing. 
and really is is dangerous, right? Because that's another thing we know is that when people are put into care and it's not voluntary and it's not based on trust, all that does is either traumatize or re-traumatize people. So I think it's really dangerous. It's really scary, as you mentioned. Um, my organization is is planning to challenge this. If you ask me in a couple of weeks, I can say a lot more. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I mean we ch- we we opposed it strongly with coalitions of dozens and dozens of of folks, um, both across the state and across the country. And the people really strongly opposed were broad, right? It's folks who have interacted with the criminal justice system. It's folks who have been harassed by police. It's people who have struggled to find housing. Um, It's folks who who have been subject to involuntary uh, medical treatment. Um, It's, you know, so, so it's a broad coalition against it it really is i think a lot of the intersection between you know i think ruthie was saying she got involved sort of around the protests in 2020 um george floyd like it it is about interact you know sweeping people into a system that is harmful um to to especially black folks who are unhoused um and not doing (laughs) the thing that is harder and takes more time, but is the thing that has actually been shown to be effective, which is to build housing. And one of the things that was really fascinating when I went through the, you know, 3,000 or so pages of of legislative history about care court is even the supporters, which, as I said, were like cities and chambers of commerces and um, whatnot, is that even they said, this isn't going to work without housing. Right. Hmm. It was pretty uniform <laughs> across the board. This isn't going to work without housing. Um, but we don't have the housing. Right. We we do not have the funding for housing on the scale. We have definitely upped funding for housing, but not at the scale it needs to be. And we have not created the protections at the scale that they need to be. Right. We saw with COVID that we are, in fact, capable of providing large amounts of um rental assistance, we are in fact capable of having strong tenant protections that pre- prevent eviction. Um, we're capable of disentangling rent from whether you get to stay in your home, right? We're capable of all of those things and those things help prevent homelessness. We're capable of putting funding into building housing. But I think Ultimately, what we're seeing is a lot of um, bending to political pressure of NIMBYs, which is why I think these labels actually do still matter, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? They, they do matter because they mean something, right? They mean exactly sort of the thing that I will come back to again of capital versus capital, and it leaves people out, Um and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's, I feel like in some ways these issues, as they're coming up, um, are difficult. They are in the news, but they're actually kind of simple because there's, I don't think there's a lot of, oh yeah, this is maybe a good idea. No, it's a terrible idea. It's a <laughs> terrible idea. It is going to harm people, and it's not going to solve anything. All the only thing it solves is doing something 
to bow to the political pressure of NIMBYs who don't want right. to be burdened by seeing human suffering on the streets. Mm. Riddy, what's the landscape of this in, in New York? Yeah, I mean, so not just in New York City, but like literally across upstate, mm-hmm. um, we're seeing like massive violent homeless sweeps, right? So, mm-hmm. and I think like, but the homeless sweeps and the like, you know, cross world responses, the involuntary institutionalization should be things that scare literally everybody, whether or not you have experienced homelessness, are homeless or, or not, because what they are is like criminalization of us existing in public space. I mean, I think that like what's what's going on is that people are really capitalizing on like this like public safety anxiety. People are viewing like um, successfully playing up these narratives of like homeless people as like inherently inherently violent, inherently dangerous, which of course the data does not reflect that in any way. The key, right, which Navdeep has already shared, right, like um, the first step is preventing homelessness through pre- preventing evictions. Um, the next step is to ensure that folks who are homeless have like uh, pathways to housing and access to housing, um, which is why we have a you know, housing access voucher program is on our, in our platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also need things that like are kind of like long-term prevention, right? So, you know, we know that people often go through these like cycles of homelessness because it's such a traumatic experience that um, can result in like difficulty with substance use, difficulty, you know, maintaining a, a job, um, result in like physical illness or mental illness or both. So like the solution to that, right, is like, you know, we need long-term stable housing. Um, so again, like going all the way back to like social housing or um, just like stronger tenant protection, universal rent control, good cause eviction protections, all of these things that can ensure that like people can have a safe, stable place to live. Yeah. I would also add, right, I don't want to discount that we do have a deficit of mental health services as well, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason I didn't focus on that, right, is both because I think your question was around homelessness and homelessness is not just a mental health issue. Right. right? Um, Care court, I think, does talk about service and we do need services, but it doesn't create new services, right? We know that there are models that work, assertive community treatment that are voluntary that have not really been tried on large scales either of like vol- outreach where you build trust that are voluntary and where you actually have services, where you adequately fund services. And we haven't done that on a large scale either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I, I know that um, both Newsom and, and Eric Adams are kind of talking about these interventions as targeting like the small percentage of like the most vulnerable people. Um, but it's in a way they're sort of like giving away the the plot in the sense that they're saying like this is really actually about this small segment that nobody likes and that nobody wants to see on their commute. You know, but at the same time, like Eric Adams' like policy, like it like gives cops a lot of leeway to decide well, exactly. yeah. who is like who like fit into that category. Right. So it's like this is only gonna target like the people right. who are, you know, like uh, most at risk and blah blah blah. But it just gives like I mean, and I think the last thing we want is to like give cops more leeway <laughs> to yeah. institutionalize us. And right. like so yeah, it's 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 scary because it's gonna just like impact um way more people than is within like the official, you know, selection of who's supposed to be targeted by this policy. Right. Yeah. Increasing the police power without increasing housing stock or anything else. Well, and even if you just look at it as who who this is targeting, 
We know in California that people who are black are overrepresented in the unhoused population Mm -hmm. by huge percentages, shocking percentages. We also know that schizophrenia is overdiagnosed in people who are black as well. So, you know, so I think what Ruthie said about discretion when combined with what we already know is is sort of byproducts of racist policies, it's going to be even more, I think, devastating and racialized in, in how it's applied. Mm-hmm. For, for what it's worth, I'm not sure also that these are like popular policies. Right? Yeah. Like, it's like I uh, last, uh, maybe made in the spring or maybe it was last year, like Eric Adams did polling around public safety. Um, and was like, okay, like what, what do New Yorkers want to address like our public safety crisis? And like, um, the top response was like housing, right? That like if we address mm. the housing crisis, we're going to see like a difference in our public, you know, in public safety. So I think like, um, nice, yeah. you know, tent protections, like you know, better housing, um, addressing like the housing crisis in like deep and transformative ways is more popular than ever. And so like, but it takes it's going to take like all of us to make it clear that like these are the things that we want, not just like you know, things are tax breaks for developers or, um, you know, increased criminalization or the other things that like the people in power and especially like the executives are proposing. Mm. Well, that's, that's a happy note. So maybe we'll end there. <laughs> um, it's such an honor and pleasure to talk to you guys, Rudy and Amit. Thank you so much for making time and taking time out of your incredibly busy schedules doing this work. Um, thank you for listening to the show. Um, as always, you can support us on Patreon and Substack. You can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or tweet at us, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Bye for now. Thank you.